If you please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 16 and verses 25 through 40. And if you're using the Pew Bible, that's found on page 955. So 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 16, and 25 to 40. And last week we had looked at the uniqueness of sexual immorality, how as human beings we are both spiritual and physical, and the core of our being is body and soul, and sexuality touches on the core of our being. It affects us, body and soul. And this is why sexual sin is so destructive, because it's not simply a physical act, but it's a spiritual act. It has a spiritual impact as well. It's a sin against the core of our being, a sin against the very image of God in ourselves. Well, in today's reading, Paul addresses the opposite extreme. So if sex is so powerful, if sexual sin is so destructive, there were some who thought that, well, everyone should be celibate, even those who are married. And in Paul's response in this passage, the Holy Spirit shows that there is a proper and a good context for human sexuality. That is in the context of a covenant marriage between one man and one woman. But Paul also recognizes that marriage is not the calling for every single Christian. Paul himself was unmarried. Jesus was unmarried. And there are certain advantages for one's ability to serve the Lord, serve in the kingdom, that can only come to those who are unmarried, which Paul describes in this passage. So 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 6, then 25 through 40. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now concerning the manners about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I am myself, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such case, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. 
Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his or her passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet, yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this word. Uh, Lord, there is a, a lot here. There is a lot to discuss. Father, I do pray for your Spirit to guide us as we go through this passage. As always, Father, I need your Holy Spirit as I preach. There is nothing that I can say that is beneficial on my own. It is only your word that is beneficial. It is only your Holy Spirit speaking through your word that can change us, that can grow us, that can minister to us, and can provide us the power that comes from your word. So, Lord, we do pray that right now, Lord, that I will proclaim your word with truth and power. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, throughout church history, the church has, has responded differently to the sexual immorality of the surrounding culture. And it has responded in extremes. One extreme can only be described as really as, as an opposition to sex altogether, to see sex as dirty, to see it as unspiritual. And there are certain religious traditions that require celibacy of their clergy and those who participate in a religious order. And we see this in the Roman Catholic Church, which requires their priests and their bishops and their monks and their nuns to remain unmarried. And in these traditions, being unmarried, refraining from all sexual activity, is seen as the best way that one can serve the Lord. Now, the other extreme, and I think this is what we see today in our evangelical church, is to make an idol out of sexuality and of marriage, to see marriage as universal. Uh, so you see, marriage is applying to everyone. And we send a not-too-subtle uh, message, I think, that if a person is single, there must be something wrong with them. They must be selfish. They should be married. That's what they, sh that what they should want. But Paul, I think, corrects here both of these errors 
in this passage. And Paul starts off by showing us that marriage and marriage alone is the only context for sexual relations. And as we discussed last week, any sexual activity outside the bounds of a a lifelong covenant marriage between one man and one woman is sinful. But not only is uh, sex permitted within marriage, it is expected within marriage. Paul says in verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And there's actually, this verse is actually very radical uh, with respect to the understanding of marriage and sex in, in the ancient world. See, marriages at this time in, in the ancient world, and in, in many places today, these marriages were arranged, arranged for political reasons, arranged to bring together families, or, or even to bring together kingdoms. And oftentimes, a husband and a wife, the only sexual sex that they had was really for the purpose of having children, of, of producing heirs. Sexual fulfillment uh, for either spouse was not a priority in these marriages. And it was not uncommon for husbands to have a mistress or to frequent prostitutes. And I had a friend who, who was married to a, a man who was from the, the Middle East. And she said that her father-in-law had a mistress and her mother-in-law was completely fine with it. This, this was expected. This was the norm. Well, my friend wasn't his understanding when her now ex-husband followed in his father's footsteps. But Paul's words here are, again, completely counter-cultural. Paul makes it clear that having a mistress or, or going to a prostitute, which is pornea, is sexual morality, this is sinful. This is not an option for the Christian. Sexual fulfillment is to be found only within marriage. And again, this is a radical idea. This is a radical idea for the Corinthian culture. The second thing that's radical in this verse is that sexual fulfillment is not limited here to just the husband. While it was common for a husband to have a mistress or to go to prostitutes, it was very unlikely that unfaithfulness of a wife would be tolerated in these cultures. But this verse says that the husband should have his own wife and the wife her own husband. Verse 3 actually starts with the husband's duty to the wife. Verse 3 says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. See, the one flesh relationship in marriage is a mutual giving of oneself to the other. It's not a one-sided. It is a mutual giving, self-giving. And the culture often saw the wife as the property of her husband, to do with as he pleases. But this is not how Paul sees it. This is not how Paul describes it. Paul says in verse 4, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And there would be no arguing with that. They said, of course. But look what he says after this. He says, and likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. See, this would have been conceived completely radical. See, it is a mutual giving. God's plan is not misogynistic, but it is a beautiful display of a mutual submission and a mutual self-giving of one another. And Paul makes it clear, not only is sex permitted in marriage, not only is sex expected in marriage, but just as having sex outside of marriage is sinful, not having sex in marriage is sinful. Look at verse 5. It says, Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement, for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. See, according to this verse, Neither the wife nor the husband can deprive one another unilaterally. Each spouse has joint ownership over each other's body. And here I need to be clear what this is is not saying. 
See, just because it's sinful for one spouse to deprive the other, this does not mean that the other spouse, the spouse who is not being who, who is being deprived, has the right to force himself or herself on the other. This is also sinful. It is a mutual giving of oneself. It is not a taking. And also notice here, any periods of abstinence, they are to be by agreement. They're not to be unilateral. These, and these times are also to be limited. They are not to be the norm. And Paul then provides a practical warning here that failure to obey these instructions, what this does is it opens the door to Satan, opens the door to Satan's temptation to fall into sexual sin and, and all the destructive consequences that flow from it. And we need to realize that a big sin almost never comes out of the blue. It's usually the result of many smaller sins. And and when these smaller sins reach critical mass, they result in this big sin. But God in his grace provides safeguards, provides safeguards to, to, to protect us, to keep us from sinning. And a healthy sexual relationship within a marriage is one of those safeguards that keep a couple from falling into a destructive sexual sin. Regular sexual relations should be the norm for married couples. But this is not all Paul has to say to married people in this passage. Paul also reiterates Jesus' teachings of the permanence of marriage. We see this in verse 10 and 11. Paul says to the married, I give you this charge, not I, but the Lord. And here Paul is acknowledging that this is Jesus' teachings. Jesus' teaching from his own earthly ministry. And he says the wife should not separate from her husband. In verse 11, and the husband should not divorce his wife. The thing is, marriage is permanent. But this, again, doesn't force uh, the wife to stay in an unsafe situation. Look at Again, look how, how wise Paul's words are in verse 11. He says, but if she does, that is, she does leave, she is to remain unmarried or, or else be reconciled to her husband. See, there are situations that are dangerous where, where a wife is being abused. She should remove. She, she should certainly leave. And there are times it may not be abuse, but just, just for sanity's sake, they need to separate. They need to get along, away. This is not necessarily sinful. The, the, the goal always should be reconciliation. But they should not leave to go to another relationship. That's the key. Not leave to go to another man or leave to go to another woman. And these situations here are talking about a marriage between two Christians. A marriage where the husband and the wife, they're both filled with the Holy Spirit. They're both seeking to obey God, seeking to glorify God. And in these situations, the, the couple's not even alone. They have the church. The church is a resource. The church is praying for them, coming alongside them, helping them in this situation, helping them reconcile. But what about situations when they're not both believers? What about situations where maybe both spouses were unbelievers when they married and one was converted in the marriage and the other was not and now they are unequally yoked? What about them? Are they bound to stay together? Well, here Paul provides, again, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, instruction on a situation that was not taught by Jesus during his earthly ministry. And in verses 12 through 16, Paul addresses the believers who are in this situation. He refers to them as the rest. And he says, To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. 
But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And the first thing we we notice here when we're looking at this is that even if a believer is married to an unbeliever, this does not invalidate the marriage. It is a valid marriage. And this is not an excuse to get out of the marriage. See, if the unbeliever consents to stay in the marriage, they should not divorce. And and the reason is because God can work in that marriage. God works through the believer in this marriage. See, the, the, the believer becomes the conduit of God's grace to the unbelieving spouse. And it's through the believer's words and actions and prayers. And, and it's also a connection with the church through the prayers of the church. This unbelieving spouse can come to faith. We see this in verse 16. It says, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So this is the goal. This is what we want to see. And I can, I can say it in my own marriage. When Lynn and I both got married, we were both unbelievers. And I came to faith before her. And I know for, for a little time she made fun of me, called me a religious fanatic, and, and thought I was one of these crazy religious people. But eventually the Holy Spirit got a hold of her, and she's just as crazy as, as I am as a religious fanatic. But you know, that is the goal, that the Lord will work together and bring us to faith. to bring this unbeliever to faith so that they are no longer unequally yoked, but equally yoked. But even before this, even before the unbelieving spouse comes to faith, Paul tells us in this verse that he or she, the unbelieving spouse, is made holy by the believing spouse. And this is so that the children are clean, so that the children will be part of the covenant. See, God makes a covenant with believers and with their children. Even before they make a profession of faith, they are part of the covenant. And the children of unbelievers are still part of, the, the children of one unbeliever and, and a believer are still part of the covenant. See, children of just unbelievers, they are not part of the covenant. Now, this doesn't mean that children are automatically saved. Now, they have to make their own prof- personal profession of faith. But there is much grace given to them, much blessing given to those who are in this covenant as children. So the preference would be for the believer to remain married to the unbeliever and to, and to be used as this conduit of grace to bring the unbelieving spouse to faith. But if the unbelieving spouse refuses to remain in the marriage and wants to leave, and want, you know, if, if Lynn would have said, you're a religious crazy guy, that's not what I signed up for, and wanted to leave, then, then the, the, the believer is not bound in the marriage. And then the, they may divorce and they may remarry, but they must remarry in the Lord. Only, remar- only marry a believer. So these are Paul's instructions to the married. They are, th- this is the calling for those who are married. But what about for the unmarried? What is Paul's instructions to them? And here's where, where we may be confused when we read this. Paul may surprise us. See, Paul, Paul doesn't sound like uh, someone you see in the evangelical church today, the instructions that you would get in the church today. Right? We would expect Paul to say, if you're unmarried, get married. Get married as soon as you can. Have lots of kids, because that's the, that's the Christian way. That's what you would expect to hear. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. See, Paul says it is good for them to remain single. And this is his opinion. This is his understanding. But this is not, he's not dogmatic. This is not the only option. Paul says in verse 9, 
He says, but if they cannot exercise self-control, then they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. See, Paul is not giving a command to marry or a command to remain single. What we're seeing here is a matter of calling. It's a matter of gifting. See, for those who are given the gift of self-control, for those who do not burn with passion, Paul advises them to remain single. And then for those who are not given this gift, to those who do burn with passion, Paul says, it is better for you to seek marriage. Go seek marriage. And it's important to understand here that this is a matter of God's calling. It's a matter of God's gifting. It's not one size fits all. Paul himself, who is single, sees advantages to remaining single, but he's also clear that it is not sinful for those who desire to marry to marry. Verse 28, he says, But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. But Paul does clearly favor not marrying over marrying. We see this in verse 38. He says, so then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. You see, he has a preference here. See, not, not marrying is definitely seen by Paul as to have an advantage. And why is this? Is, is this Paul's own prejudice? Does Paul just want everyone to be like him? No, I think we see the answer in, in verses 32 to 34. Paul says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, and to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. See, Paul sees marriage here as dividing our interests. He sees a person who is, who is unmarried is able to focus on the things of the Lord. But the person who is married has to be more focused on worldly things, how to please his wife, how to take care of his family. His, in some senses, his loyalties are divided. And we can understand this. If a person's single, there's so much more freedom they have. They can go overseas to be a missionary. They can take risks. They can be martyred. But a person who's married, a person who has a family to take care of, they have to think about this. They don't have quite the freedom. It's not so easy for them to do that if they're married and have children. And this may be true in general, and this may even be true for the Corinthians. But I don't think, I don't think it's absolute. I think there are many married couples and families who, who are single-mindedly focused on serving the Lord. I think, I think of the Pitts family. They went as a family overseas uh, in, in a dangerous country. But they went as a family. They saw that as, the, as God's calling on them as a family. And the husband and wife and children, in some cases, can work together synergistically and are able to better serve the kingdom than they would have been able to do as individuals. And I think this is why Paul is not dogmatic here. He's simply, what he's doing, he's giving practical advice. Uh, advice that probably applied to the Corinthians' uh, specific situation. And this fact we see in verse 35. He says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you. So he's not trying to restrain them, either to force them to marry or forcing them not to marry. But he says, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. See, this is the goal. This is the goal for both the single and the married. It's undivided devotion to the Lord. And this will look differently to us, whether we're married or unmarried, depending on our different callings. And this is the call for each one of us. This is the, the focus for each of us. How can I best serve the Lord? How can I best make him known? How can I best bring him glory? And the bottom line is whether we are single or whether we are married, it is not about us. 
It's not about our happiness. It's not about our fulfillment. It's not about uh, our singleness or, or, or fulfillment in marriage. It is about the Lord. It is about him. And it's about his calling on our lives. See, we are not our own. We were bought with a price. And this price is the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it has washed away the guilt of all our sins. It has set us free from the bondage of sin. And we are now free. Free not to devote to ourselves and our own fulfillment, but free to serve him. Be free to be devoted to him. Free to bring him glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this word. Lord, we thank you that uh, there is different callings for different people. And Lord, we are not all the same. And Father, I do pray for those who are married and those who are single, all of us, Lord. Help us to, to live in the calling that you have given to us and to bring you glory in whatever we do and say. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.